Yeah, as Ben said, for the last, I think it's about 18 months, I've been, aside from my day job in London, whenever I've um, had the time and resources, I've been making research trips to different areas of the European Union or uh, countries just on the edge of the, outside edge of the EU, to write about, mainly about refugees and other undocumented migrants who, who are trying to cross the borders. The reason I decided to do that was not, not through any great knowledge of, of what was happening before I went, but actually just because it's, um, you know, stories about migrants coming across the Mediterranean in boats or, you know, photograph and footage of, of detention centres or border areas or emergency refugee camps set up for Syrians were just things that kept cropping up in the news and had always interested me. And I just thought, well, I would like to go as a journalist to as many places I can get to and just find out what's actually happening there and meet people and, and, and just, just see where it takes me. What I've actually ended up doing, uh, for certainly throughout 2014, I, I started by looking at... Um, I just plotted out a few locations on a map where I thought it looked like there was a, there was a, a border area that was interesting for one re reason or another and I had heard... Uh, that there were things happening there that I thought, you know, anything that made me think, oh, I'd really like to go and know what the deal there is. So one of the first things I did, for example, was um, in the autumn of 2013. I don't think, it, initially it wasn't very widely reported, but I think I just saw a Reuters news article that had some pictures of a, a refugee camp in Bulgaria that had been set up for Syrians who'd crossed the border en masse uh, about a month previously, and that, you know, at that point they were living in unheated, unsanitised, canvas military tents and it it was even from from what I knew about Europe's migration policies and refugee policies it seemed seemed quite startling to me that that, that you know in an EU country there wasn't anything else an infrastructure set up to to deal with what should have been a very predictable influx of refugees from Syria coming that way so what I'd like to talk to you about today is that I thought I would just pick out three sets of stories um located in three different areas of Europe that I think cover the the range of themes that have come up through through the work that I've done and um, I'd say I'm, st I'm still at the stage where I've, I've done a lot of travelling and a lot of interviewing of people and I know a lot of the sort of the facts on the ground and I'm now starting to try and sit in the library and read and think about what all of this might mean so in fact today is going to be as helpful for me as I hope it is for you because I hope that the discussion afterwards will be people helping me work out what the things I've seen mean and what's actually happening and what processes are at work. There's not going to be any, any great sort of audio-visual experience, I'm afraid. I've just got a map there so that it's a bit easier for reference when I talk about places. So I'll just kind of dive into the first one. So the first of the three areas that I wanted to talk about was what's been happening in and around Greece in the last few years. And particularly, does the so it's Greece's um, land border with Turkey, which is about 200 kilometres that runs from the Balkans down into the, um, the GNC. Um, and that border is mainly formed by a river, the River Evros. Um, and I wanted to start with that because that, to me, seemed to represent perhaps what a border is generally perceived as, you know, the, the, the sort of conventional image and idea of a border, that it's a, it's a fairly definite line that separates, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that marks out a national boundary, separates two countries, and that when you cross it, you're very definitely going from one place to another. And I think it's a good point to start 
Uh, so actually, yeah, just before I start doing that, I wanted to say that the, the sort of the the particular migrants that I've been interested in, and this I think I'll come back to at the end. I've I've had you'll probably hear me using the words refugees and migrants and undocumented migrants slightly interchangeably and imprecisely, and that's because I feel like the 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 kind of people that I've been meeting and interviewing are a distinct category, but one that there isn't really a, a name that's, that, that has, has quite summed up everything that's going on. Because if you talk about refugees, a refugee, if somebody is a refugee by, by sort of um, international definitions, they, it doesn't really tell you how they've travelled. Um, you know, refugees in the UK could arrive by plane, they could be hiding underneath a lorry, they could have come in legally and overstayed on a visa. It doesn't really tell you about how they got here and, and through what legal or non-legal methods they use. However, all of the refugees that I've met during the course of my research are people that have crossed, you know, they've come across land borders or they've sailed across the sea and they've, they've had to make a very sort of distinctive physical journey across a large geographical area. And generally they've had to do that using clandestine methods at one point or another. The problem is that not everybody who does that is, meets that international definition of a refugee. And then you get into all the conversation about, well, are they economic migrants or other migrants? And if, you know, maybe they are refugees in a wider sense, but not in, in, in the kind of um, official terminology. Um, so that's just to warn you that I might be sort of hopping between terms a bit. And it, if, if it's confusing, then that maybe is something we can talk about at the end. So to go back to, to talking about this, this um, Evros border between Greece and Turkey, I think that's a good place to start with because... It's where, you know, if we are thinking about migrants entering Europe and their first encounter with the European border, this is um, one that meets a fairly, perhaps it fits a kind of stereotypical image. So in the last decade or so, that's been one of the main points of entry into the European Union for undocumented migrants. And the reason why is because people who are coming from Africa or Asia or the Middle East will make their way to Turkey. And the, the general pattern is that People go to Istanbul, that's a place where it's very, you know, there are networks of contacts there who can put you in touch with people, smugglers, very easily. The smugglers can then take on this very short journey. It takes a three-hour drive from Istanbul to Adirne, which is the last major city in Turkey, before you reach the EU. And from there, you can then pay smugglers who will either take you to the Greek border and just point you in the right direction and say, cross that river and you'll be fine, or you can pay somebody and they'll, they'll actually take you by night in a little rubber-inflatable boat across the river and I just wanted to start with one story that I had from a, uh, a man that I interviewed who, who, had, who had come across that border um, some years ago where it's a border area in, in, in more than one sense in that the river as it flows down to the sea becomes a delta you know there, there's all of these waterways and marshy land it's, not, it's literally not solid ground you don't really know where you are the, the, the routes change all the time you need a guide to tell you where are the safe places to cross and this one man in particular, he had come there all the way from Iraqi Kurdistan and he told me this long, very detailed story about how he was taken there at night and there were, you know, the Greek police were patrolling the other side of the river and they had to wait until they had passed and a lot of it, you know, they had to walk through these reed beds and he had to stand sort of up to his waist in water and wait there until it was a safe moment to go and, you know, it was very perilous and uncertain and he didn't know what was going to happen on the other side. And that's a fairly common experience, I think, for people for people crossing there. Um, but I find this area fascinating <coughs> because, although it's, I think it immediately throws up a question there about what those migrants and those refugees are encountering when they cross that border. Because all of the hardships that he described, 
and the others I've spoken to and other accounts of crossing the Everest border describe it, the hardships they come up across seem like they're natural. It's the natural environment that they're, they're really up against at that point. And the Everest River, it's only about a kilometre wide at its widest point, but it's got very fast currents and it's very muddy, so people very often drown in the river. Um, and the question of well, why, why is there this death toll associated with it, which is a now much bigger question... <coughs> in regards to why, you know, why do so many migrants drown crossing the Mediterranean, which sort of, the more I've looked into it, just, I find it very hard to decide, well, is that, is that evidence of a, of, a, of a system at work? You know, is this the fault of an EU border system, or is it actually the absence of a system that is, um, is causing it? So the first sort of journey that I, I, I want to talk about, really, is the journey that, that many, many people have crossed that border take because, um, because for, for many of them the next stop will be Athens and um, I think the relationship between what goes on at that Everest border and what's been happening in Athens in the last few years tells us something about the dynamic between um, you know what's going on in European cities, fears about migration, what's been happening economically and then that, how that affects um, the way people are treated at the border. Now one of the places that I visited when I was, when I was travelling around that area is that there's a um, there's a small village just on the Greek side of the border called Sidero, and it's lived in. It's inhabited by Greece's Turkish Muslim minority, who are a hangover from the population exchanges that took place a century ago. That, and they've for for, for many decades were treated with with official suspicion by the Greek government. Um, there were road roadblocks around the village until the mid 90s, and you needed permission to get in and out. And it's because you know because of historic hostility between Greece and Turkey they were treated somewhat as, a, as an enemy within but actually Sidero has been become a crucial part in the story of that border and, and the way that refugees are treated because on top of one of the hillsides just outside the village is an unmarked graveyard where the bodies of people who, who drown in the river but can't be identified are taken to be buried um, now the reason why they're taken there is because the, the mufti of the village gives Muslim burial rights to, to all of these bodies now Nobody knows who these people who died are, but the assumption of the Greek state is, oh, well, they've come from outside, so they must be Muslims. Um, so we'll give them Muslim burials. And this, I think, it, it immediately raises questions of um, the... Again, this is something I'm still trying to think through, but um, the assumptions that are made about the kinds of people that are coming via these clandestine routes, and they're already being sort of marked as outsiders and, and, and as very foreign. The experiences of uh, migrants who survive that journey and make it to Greece and actually make it to Athens. What I think is very interesting about Greece is that it tells us a bit about the... I, don't, I, find, I find the relationship between what, what I've seen happening in Athens to the, the many thousands of undocumented migrants who live there and what I saw happening at that Everest border. I think it tells us a lot about a particular dynamic that I think is happening, happening more widely in Europe. Um, so to just try and as briefly as I can give a bit of context about what's happened in Greece over the last five to ten years. Uh, as I said before, it was, it was a major point of entry for um, undocumented migrants to the EU um, for geographical reasons. People were able to come from Turkey. Um, so this would be pretty much anybody who wanted to get into the EU uh, but didn't have the resources to come by aeroplane and didn't have the documents to arrive legally. So that would uh, not only be refugees from, from various parts of the world, but, but migrant workers from, say, Pakistan and Bangladesh who wanted to come to Europe, maybe work in agriculture for a while, make their way to a big city, um, earn more money that 
uh, would either establish them lives there or that they'd be able to send back home. What happened again, partly for geographical reasons, because, because the countries immediately to the north of Greece are not EU member states and therefore there's no easy free movement to get into to Central and, and Western Europe from Greece, is that people would become trapped in Athens. Um, the Greek asylum and immigration system has always been very dysfunctional and, and, and what happened in practice was that migrants would arrive from, from various different places and they would claim asylum even if they knew that they didn't have any um, grounds, grounds to actually be granted asylum because there was, there was a delay of up to 10 years in the process and you would just be living on this temporary document that was renewed every six months and it meant that people could live in Athens and try and find work if there was work or try and work out ways they could then smuggle themselves elsewhere in Europe. This led to a, after the crisis in 2008-2009, um, you know, when the economy went down and, and uh, Greek citizens were being very hard hit, the resentment over the sight of so many migrants le- either living crammed into small flats in Athens or, or living on the street in many cases allowed a very vicious kind of racist politics to develop um, that was, you know, probably most people would associate that with um, the emergence of, of, of Golden Dawn as a you know, in, into the political mainstream, but it was also very heavily played upon by by mainstream politicians. In 2012, there was um, a lot of pressure coming from other EU states on Greece to sort out its border problem. Um, the Austrian <coughs> Interior Minister, I think, said Greece was like an open barn door to Europe. They're all, you know, and this was going on at the same time as as the Troika and you know other Eurozone finance ministers were sort of menacing Greece to accept very stringent austerity conditions and there was this added pressure that Greece had to sort out its borders, you know, crack down on, on, on this, this, this phenomenon of um, so many undocumented migrants coming into the country. Greek politicians from the mainstream parties uh, used, used some quite strongly racist rhetoric in the lead up to the 2012, ele- 2012 election, so you had a minister from the um, nominally socialist PASOK party talking of the hygiene bomb of immigration. You had the leader of the centre-right party who then became prime minister after the elections making an explicit vow during the election campaign that we're going to take back our cities from, the, from this migrant invasion. You know, uh, very, you know, we're going to clean up the streets. So there, there's all of this rhetoric associating um, refugees and other undocumented migrants with sort of disease, dirt, uncleanliness and the general sort of economic turmoil of the country. What the incoming government in 2012 then did was institute this system of a huge police sweep that it named Xenios Zeus. So that's named after the Greek god of hospitality. But what they did was that the police went and arrested about 60,000 non-white people from the streets of Athens, uh, treated them very badly and put, put many of them into detention. And when I first visited Athens, which was at the end of 2012, I met an Afghan family who were really experiencing the, the, the sharp end of all of this. And that was probably one of the first bits of reporting on refugees that I did. And it, I think, to come back to that, the, the title of my talk, this, I, this idea of the border being everywhere, that was something that I picked up from um, a collection of essays by Etienne Balabar, where he, I think he, he had an essay titled What is a Border? And there's another one where he talks about this as well. And... Um, I don't have a great theoretical grounding in this, so I sort of have picked up the idea and I don't know if I interpret it right or not, but I think what he, he tries to argue in that is that as, you know, as globalisation progresses, the, the sort of physical um, borders between nation-states become less and less defined and uh, you know, capital becomes more mobile, labour becomes more mobile, and, and, and the response has been, has been for this, 
this growth of the border into you know the centres of society. So it's not just something that sits there at the edge, and that in in various different ways. Um, the state is trying to delineate and categorise and keep people separate. And um, I suppose good examples of that in Britain are the fact that um, asylum seekers are placed on, you know, they're not allowed access to the normal benefit system and they're placed on this restricted system of welfare. They're issued with plastic cards that actually say these people don't have the right to work. So even if, you know, they might be in Leeds or Liverpool or wherever, there's still, what I would say, a kind of border at work keeping them separate from from the rest of the population. What happened, what's happened in Greece, I think, is, is, a, is an example of where there's been this kind of sudden defensive response where there's been this pressure to sort of militarise the borders, and that um, happens both at the edges and in the cities. So what's happened on the River Everest since 2012 is that they built a 15-kilometre fence that is shown off to journalists from all over the world and you know journalists are taken on tours along it and you're told how it's got heat seeking devices and um, you know lots of barbed wire and cameras and uh, they also sent thousands and thousands of police officers police officers to patrol the Everest but the crackdown has been as much on the lives of migrants who have already crossed the border and are living in the middle of the cities and this Afghan family that I met in Athens in 2012 told me this, this very arresting story of essentially how their living space in which they could move, you know, the space in which they could go about their daily lives had just got smaller and smaller and smaller as this, crack, this government cracked down these, these police sweeps, the rise of neo-Nazi parties on, uh, neo-Nazi party on the streets of Athens had, had just encroached on their space. And um, they were living in one of the, the inner suburbs of Athens where the Nazi party Golden Dawn had really imprinted its mark on the area. It had gone around and sprayed uh, its logo and pictures of the Greek flag on street corners. You know, it's a neighbourhood that I visited and immediately when you enter the neighbourhood you feel like oh, you're in our territory. This is, you know, Greece for the Greeks territory. This Afghan family, uh, the, the husband had been working on a construction site. He'd lost his job because he was beaten up and hospitalised when he was crossing this, this kind of marked out Golden Dawn territory. Um, but when I asked him, well, are, you, are you worried about the far right here? They said, no, we're worried about the police. There's no difference. They just wear different uniforms. And that they had actually, along with other Afghan fam- families in the neighbourhood, ended up living this essentially nocturnal existence where everybody would stay in the house during the daytime um, because it was too risky to go out on the streets, they felt because they thought you could be, you know, you could be going to buy a pint of milk or whatever, and the police would lift you and put you in a detention centre, and then you wouldn't see your husband or your wife again for eighteen months or something. And that obviously limited their ability to earn money, so they were struggling. And what what they told me they had done in response, the families around it, all the women of the families would go out at night together and route through the bins of the local church to find food to feed their kids. Now, to me, that's, that's not just a sort of story of unfortunate poverty and hardship for some people who've had hard lives already. I think that's a direct result, not only of, you know, it's not just, it's not just a result of economic crisis making life harder for, for everybody. That's a result of, of this kind of all-pervasive sort of border defence coming down on Athens as much as it came down on, on, on the physical frontiers of, of Greece. And the, the driving force behind that much like the way that Athens has experienced the economic crisis has been sort of the it's it's been the EU rather than Greece itself. Uh, migrants wouldn't have been coming to Greece if Greece wasn't a member of the Schengen zone, and they didn't think that they could come to Greece and get through and travel where else, wherever they wanted to in Europe. Greece wouldn't have 
instigated these these um, authoritarian crackdowns on migrants if it wasn't coming under pressure from the EU to do something about its problem. And the situation that is now left in Greece is that after two years of these government sweeps, there are now something like 8,000 people in detention in Greece. And the new Syriza-led government has pledged to close the detention centres. But this, I think, is going to be very, very difficult to dismantle because, you know, even just in terms of the local politics, I don't see, you know, Syriza have got a genuine desire to dismantle these detention centres where, where people are being kept. But, I mean, they're, they're going to be immediately accused by the right of letting thousands of, of penniless, um, undocumented migrants back onto the streets. And the only thing that will, you know, the only kind of progressive solution to that, in my view, is where you'd need a large investment of money to then support people to go through the asylum process to, to improve the, um, the processes by which people are granted asylum or citizenship and the rest of it. And that, you know, Greece has not got the money to do that. They, that would need support from the EU. Yet the EU is still treating Greece as a kind of weak link in the chain that just needs to be shored up to stop migrants coming through to the rest of Europe. That's example one. Um, which I hope just throws out a few ideas about the... Mm, the sort of effects that, that border crackdowns, which which are you know are happening in several different European countries, might be having. Um, the second example I wanted to talk about is, I think, for me, has been very interesting in terms of thinking about well, what do people do when faced with a hostile system that, in various different ways, is either trying to keep them out or when they enter a country is trying to keep them under lots lots of restrictions. Um, I just wanted to give a little anecdote about another border area, somewhere that I've never been to, but I feel that I know quite well, which is the Syria's northern border with Turkey. So there's a province called Hasaka province, which is the main Kurdish province, and there's a city just near the border called Kamishli, and it's, I think it's got a population of about 100 or 200,000. Um, looks like a very kind of, you know, dusty streets, uh, 1960s concrete tower blocks, could be a city in Turkey, could be in various other places in the Middle East. It's surrounded by streams of towns and villages that run along. There's a kind of major highway that, that, that runs parallel to the border and there are all these little towns off it and they're, you know, they're mainly Kurdish. They have little uh, sort of farming towns. Um, the families, you know, people have lived for generations in these same little towns and there's still very strong family networks. People will grow up in a house where their grandparents live around the street corner, they'll go to the local school, the kids will grow up and, you know, they'll get their basic education there and then they would go off to university in one of the major Syrian cities but then come back to these areas trained up as engineers or doctors or, you know, kind of technical professions that, that help the running of these border provinces and obviously this area has been in the news a lot in the last year or two it's where ISIS now encircled these Kurdish areas and um, you know the Kurdish defence forces are, are trying to keep people out and I've sort of looked at you know I've, there are several towns there where I've got a very good sense of the geography and sort of where ISIS is stationed and where they are now I've, I've never been there but I learned all this while I've been while I was sitting in various different apartments in Sofia in Bulgaria with Kurdish refugees who had come from come from this area, um, who had essentially what happened in about the middle of 2013, 2013 was between ten and fifteen thousand mainly Kurdish refugees from Syria entered Bulgaria within the space of a couple of months, and by the autumn they were being housed in these temporary overflow refugee camps along Bulgaria's southern border or around Sofia, and 
Um, this was what I mentioned earlier. It hit the news because conditions in them were very, very basic. Uh, Medicine Sans Frontieres went up and set, set up emergency uh, aid clinics there, which I think was the first. It was the first time Medicine Sans Frontieres have actually set up a, a project within the European Union. And I made several trips to visit these camps and then follow the journeys of people that I met in them as they tried to get, you know, they got out of the camps, tried to rent flats around Bulgaria, tried to work out ways they would make it to other bits of Europe, mainly Germany. Germany is where most of these people were originally intending to go when they, when they travelled up through Turkey and into, into Bulgaria. And what I was, I suppose it was a, it was a kind of real eye-opener for me, because my first encounter with, with some of these refugees was that I visited one of these tent camps near the, near the Turkish border. People, they'd only just got running water in the camp. Medicine Saint Frontier had only just opened a medical clinic, and they had, I remember somebody came up to me, and he heard that I was speaking English, and he could speak English, and he said, oh, do you know, do you know what the Premier League scores are? I haven't been able to see for the last 45 days. And they, they were completely cut off, you know, they hadn't been able to get in touch with their families elsewhere, um, no news about what was happening from the outside, obviously none of them spoke Bulgarian and there was no translation support, so they, they weren't even really that aware of what was or wasn't being done, done to help them. And to my, as I later realised, sort of, this is my sort of naivety, I just took that for granted, I thought, well, of course, they're refugees in a refugee camp, why would they know, you know, of course they're going to be cut off. But on my subsequent visits... I found that that was just a very, very temporary situation. As soon as there was any power in the camp, people were able to club together and buy... And in fact, in one case, they actually bought a little Wi-Fi connection for their row of containers that they were living in and, and then shared the password. Or if not, people would club together and buy very cheap mobile phones that did pay-as-you-go internet deals and the rest of it. And um, but I think one family in particular, they arrived in Bulgaria in October 2013 which is when I met them in November. Um, I exchanged Facebook account details with them because I thought that would be a good way to keep in touch. I wasn't, wasn't expecting to hear from them for maybe a year or so. I thought, well, that'll be when they get to somewhere else and they're settled in Germany or whatever. But within a month, this guy was sending me messages on Facebook from his tent in the camp. And the more that I delved into it, the more I saw how sort of essential that network of communication was, not just for sort of basic bits of information or knowing what was going on in the news, but to keep the sort of town and village communities that had moved en masse together, even as, you know, in some cases, people who were neighbours back home were actually neighbours in the camp, you know, they were in neighbouring tents. In other cases, they were several hundred miles away from one another. But people were using... You know WhatsApp and um, Facebook Messenger, and um, there's a, a sort of a, a, an equivalent of Skype that just works a bit better on mobile phones called Viber. And that, that essentially, they were, as, as they were kind of spread across Bulgaria, living in quite basic conditions, they were they, they, there was a semblance of their their sort of home community lives being continued via these networks. And in the last year, what's happened is about I think of those fifteen thousand, there's maybe six or seven thousand. Syrian refugees still in Bulgaria, and the other six or seven thousand have have made it to Germany over journeys that maybe took six to nine months. So, um, the first thing is to get out of the refugee camps, which you can't do until you've been given your papers by the Bulgarian government, which then allows you to go and try and rent a flat in Bulgaria. At that point, the sort of primary task of most of the people I met was not to work out how to establish a long-term life in Bulgaria, but was to find the nearest smuggler network who could tell them the best ways that they could get themselves to Germany. Um, there seemed to be two routes people were taking. They were either sometimes literally walking into Serbia or across the mountains, 
and making their way through Serbia and then up, up through the western side of the Balkans, or there was a kind of smuggler sort of uh, car network that would take people through Hungary and Romania and then west towards towards Germany, and that there was a kind of system of uh, you know there was a, someone gave me a whole price list that that you could bribe the border guards at each uh, border and how much it would cost and it was for relatively small amounts. Um, but as I kept in touch with people, and I had a few good contacts in families, but I would say, well, what about these people we met? What about these people we met? And you, it, essentially what has happened since probably, I, I suppose the journey started in about August 2013, and it, for a lot of people it's just finishing now as people have claimed asylum in Germany, and they're just getting their permission to stay in their refugee passports. But thousands and thousands of people from that border area of Syria have, have, have moved at the same pace and they're now in Germany. And, again, I'm still wondering what to make of this. I think there's this, I don't know, there's this line from um, the journalist Paul Mason when he was writing about what was behind the, you know, the, the eruptions of protest in 2011 and the way that people were using uh, modern communications technology to organise. And he talks about the network beats the hierarchy, that if people are sort of organising horizontally and using this communication, they can, they can use it to get around hierarchical systems of authority. And I, I think there's something like that going on there in a way that, I don't know, you know, sort of 20 or 30 years ago even, it wouldn't have been possible to... If you were stuck in this town in Bulgaria, you know, there might have been... It would have, it would have been much harder to find out information about, well, OK, so which of these smugglers in these cafes in Sofia are reliable and how much do you need to pay them? This, all this information can be communicated instantly. And certainly for these Kurdish refugees, it provided a real kind of strength, and I think that that's why so many of them made it this way and made it into Germany, whereas like many other Syrian refugees have had to go via much more dangerous routes across the Mediterranean. I also wonder if it's partly to do with the fact that Kurdish people, as a people who think of themselves as a nation but without a state of their own, have, have got more of a cultural experience of sort of maintaining... It's not quite a diaspora identity because there are, you know... The Kurdish populations are concentrated in, in a particular geographical area, but this idea that you have to find other ways to maintain a, a, a collective identity that would normally be provided for citizens of a nation state. The other thing that um, this journey going from Bulgaria through to Germany reveals again is, is a, a bit more about that power dynamic of how individual states within the EU try and um, deal with refugees and undocumented migration and how that relates to the overall EU dynamic. Now, as far as I know, the, the six or thousand uh, Kurdish Syrians who've made it to Germany, under the EU's Dublin system, the principle of which is that um, it's the responsibility of the EU country where a refugee first sets foot to process their asylum claims. These Syrian Kurds could... Germany is within its rights to return all of them to Bulgaria any time it likes. And for, some, for, for a reason I haven't quite managed to establish, it's actually said, well, well actually, we'll, we'll give these people um, humanitarian protection passports, which gives them the right to stay in Germany for three years but hasn't been very clear about what it will do afterwards. It seems to be, from what I can piece together, it seems to be part of this carrot-and-stick system that the EU is using with Bulgaria and other um, states on the EU's eastern periphery, where Bulgaria is not part of the Schengen zone, or at least until recently. I'd have to double-check that. But there's been pressure put on Bulgaria by Germany and other states to say, look we won't overload your asylum system by sending back all of these refugees 
that have already arrived in Germany on the condition that you strengthen your borders at the edge. So again, Bulgaria's border with Turkey has had a fence equivalent to the one was, that was built on the Greek border with Turkey put there, and um, the EU has invested money in improving border security there and training up officers to patrol it. But it's sort of done that... So it's, it's, it's accepted these refugees in Germany and is, I think is essentially using it as a way to, to, to slightly have that hanging over Bulgaria and say, well, well, we'll take this pressure off as long as you do our dirty work of securing the borders at the edges to make sure that we don't have more refugees coming in if there's, if there's another influx. Um, I'm mindful of time, so I want to just um, move on quite quickly to the final of the three examples that I wanted to go through, which is the work that I've been doing in Calais. Um, I think Calais is very interesting from a UK perspective because it's, well, for a long time in Britain, the figure of the asylum seeker has been this kind of folk devil that's been used by tabloids to, to sort of pin all, all, all manner of social ills on. Um, they're very, I, I feel like the, 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 sort of the image of the asylum seeker as it's rendered in the tabloid press, is, it's always a slightly undefined outsider and never quite slightly invisible and what's happening in Calais is that the, the images in the last year or so hundreds of um, African men you know literally storming the fences has, has given real fuel to the kind of popular anti-asylum seeker messages of the tabloids and that they've been able for the first time in years to kind of just go and photograph things and say look this is what's waiting for these all these people who are coming to Britain to take your benefit. This made me very much want to go there and find out well, what I mean what's actually beneath that what are the stories of people that have made it um, all the way. And I've, I've spent the last year visiting Calais as often as I can um, and just trying to meet refugees who've ended up there. And what I've been very, very interested in is not um, so much where the reasons why they left their countries of origin or how they made it to the edges of Europe, but how they ended up in Calais. Because clearly these, you know, the, the, the largest groups of um, migrants who are living rough in Calais are people from Eritrea, which is a you know, it's a country that has compulsory military service for all adults, and many people flit for that reason. They come from Western Sudan because the government is still pursuing a, a policy of ethnic cleansing in Sudan, and um, they're they're fleeing that. Or there are a lot of refugees from Afghanistan, for example. So these are all they, these are all people who come from countries that are producing large numbers of refugees. They, on the face of it, they would have grounds for asylum somewhere, but clearly by the time they've reached Calais, they're not, they're not quite refugees in that sense anymore. I spent a lot of time trying to retrace the most common routes taken by people. So to take um, refugees from Eritrea, for example, or from Sudan, most of these people will have arrived in Italy in the last year or so, having taken a smuggler boat across the Mediterranean. But within a few months, they will have arrived in Calais and be trying to get into the um, uh, get into the UK. And I think this reveals two things that I've I've intrigued me really. And one is the current EU system for dealing with refugees once they're in Europe has broken down, and that the presence of people in Calais is an indication of that. Because this this Dublin system, whereby <coughs> You know, the states where asylum seekers arrive are supposed to keep them there and process their claims only works if those states where people arrive are capable of housing, clothing, feeding people, um, processing their asylum claims quickly and efficiently, um, having economies where people can then find work. And countries like Italy that are struggling very much for an economic crisis or, or Greece or Bulgaria even can't really provide those things. Um, and in the case of Italy, it's not really been in, interest, in Italy's interest to enforce these EU regulations and, and, and try and keep 
these many thousands of, of arrivals within Italy. So the Italian police have been turning a blind eye to people that have arrived on these boats, um, either you know, riding on trains without tickets to get out of Italy or just paying ta- clubbing together and paying taxi drivers to take them up to Milan and then riding on the train to France, getting a train to Paris and then from Paris to Calais. And the, the, the growth of numbers of people in Calais is directly related to the, the failure of, of, of that wider system. The other thing I think it tells us about, again, is the, this idea of these networks that refugees themselves have and rely on being very powerful and, and being a very useful tool to, to, to beat the system, as it were. Because, again, I mean, this is, what, this is something that, again, came up in my encounters with refugees in Cali, was that they, despite the fact that people were living on the streets and had access to a power generator maybe once a day or could plug their phones in once a week, they were still using mobile communication technology to, to work out what are the best routes or what are their chances of getting into the UK. Or, or um, in many cases, they came to Calais, would try their luck, would then find, actually, well, no, you need to go back to Paris and meet this person and they'll take you to Denmark because Denmark is actually much more welcoming to asylum seekers than the UK and you'll get this, this and this here. And that what's, re- what's really been happening in Calais... Um, in the last year where the, the local authorities have been they have what they call a policy of non-encouragement so they prevent organisations like the Red Cross from setting up in town and providing any substantial aid to the refugees and whenever the refugees squat buildings or set up um, these makeshift tent camps that are, are nicknamed jungles by the press the, the police every few months will go in and demolish them and that's always done on the grounds of safety and health um, so they will say, oh, well, these refugees in this camp have got scab- you know, there's been an outbreak of scabies, so we need to demolish the camp and burn all the tents to, to put a stop to it. Or there will be, you know, the local press will air fears of crime, and they'll say, well, we need to deal with this, this you know, problem because it's a problem of illegality and criminality and the rest of it. But the reason why I think it's useful for the authorities to keep demolishing these camps is because the spaces that the refugees have formed are not just spaces to just live and sleep, but it's actually where ideas get communicated and people start talking about how they can do things collectively to, to get around the obstacles that are placed in their way. I'll just finish with two examples of that um, that I think are quite telling. One is one of the stories that kept cropping up in the British press about what was happening in Calais was the sight of people, you know, 50 to 100 Eritrean men all at once climbing the fence and running towards the, the waterfront at the port of Calais and actually just trying to run onto the ferries. And this was... That treated in the press as, um, um, you know, they're so desperate that they're, um, you know, it's kind of chaotic and unplanned. And actually, that is a tactic that migrants have developed at different ports all around Europe. To it's it's not that, you know, it was almost taken for granted. Oh, well, of course, they're they're sort of criminal and violent, and of course they're going to use these methods. That's actually a tactic to evade people smugglers who were charging large amounts of money for access to lorry parks or to, to, to hide on the ferries. And that the refugees have gone up and said, well, look, these people are ripping us off, they're thre- threatening us with violence. How can we organise collectively to overcome that? The second example, I think that was even more pronounced, was that around Calais there are various old industrial buildings that have been squatted and have been used as spaces for refugees to come and live. But what is also going on that, that's not so reported on is that they have also become places for various forms of political organising and for activities that 
strengthen the refugees' collective ability to deal with the systems that, that they encounter. And that is very obvious in one large squat that I visited a few times in Calais where there are several hundred Sudanese men and maybe four or five hundred other people who come in and out there during the daytime to get food or to use the shower that has been set up in one corner. But in the meantime, the space of this squat, it's, a, it's an old industrial warehouse with a large courtyard outside. The courtyard has all these different meetings going on uh, that range from things like language lessons. There's a, a local Sudanese ma- a man originally from Sudan who's lived in Calais for years who comes and teaches English and French to people. And he teaches them legal language. He teaches them how to deal with the police when you're arrested. Or when you get to Britain, here are the kind of words that are going to be useful for, for just getting on, you know, negotiating everyday life. The other thing that I saw that was more overtly political was that some refugee activists from Hamburg where there had been a successful campaign to get the city council to accept that the squats they had set up there were going to stay and that the refugees would not be evicted. We're on this tour of Europe where they were visiting all these different areas where refugees were congregated and living rough and saying, well look, this is how we squatted these buildings in Hamburg and this is the kind of campaign we built to get bits of sections of the local population on side and actually force the authorities to accept our presence here and start making space for us and allowing us to stay. And I think that is something that, from the, from the different journeys I made, seems to be a theme that runs, runs through several different places um, that I visited. I will leave it there without much of a, a neat concluding thought, but um, hopefully that just gives a sense of some of the work that I've been doing and what issues have started cropping up again and again. As I said, I'm still in, at the stage where I'm, I'm trying to make sense of it, so I would very much appreciate comments and questions.